I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Starting in the 2000s, a peculiar kind of TV show started appearing on cable channels like Discovery, National Geographic, and the History Channel. We all know about Stonehenge, one of the ancient world's great mysteries. But one discovery right here in North America has raised a provocative theory that something similar might exist at the bottom of Lake Michigan. Sort of archaeology, but not quite. Is this a huge underwater temple carved by a mysterious lost civilization? Is it possible that the Romans could have traveled to Nova Scotia nearly 2,000 years ago? Is it really possible that a race of giants once inhabited the Old West? For the most part, archaeologists have cringed and bared it when it comes to this kind of thing. Until this. You've been described as a pseudo-archaeologist, someone who cherry-picks your data, your books read by millions, but dismissed by academics. Did you know that you were picking a fight with academia? Because there are a lot of people that just don't want to hear this. You have been at the front of the line for decades, and you exposed me to a lot of these controversial ideas that have now been substantiated. A show on Netflix called Ancient Apocalypse claims that the true origins of human civilization were wiped out in a cataclysm about 12,000 years ago, and that we could suffer the same fate. The idea is not a new one. It has existed in many forms over centuries. In this episode, producer Matthew Lazen-Ryder looks at the history of the idea that there's a lost original civilization and its connection to culture, religion, and politics. This is Archaeology, Atlantis, and the Apocalypse. This is a story about archaeology. It's also a story about time and about myth, about aliens, religious movements, and truth. But it starts with archaeology. For most of us, shards of broken pots lying in the dirt may be kind of dull. But to archaeologists... Pot shards, man. Pot shards are so interesting. And one of My favorite types of pot shard, I've seen many pot shards. One of my favorite design styles is one where people use their thumbnails to incise little half-circle type shapes all over the pot, and that's the decoration of the pot. Steph Homhofer is an archaeologist and PhD student at the University of Alberta. I love those pot shards because 
you know, you're touching something where like somebody a thousand years ago took their own thumb and they spent hours perhaps just digging in, you know, maybe zoning out a little, getting into that groove again, chatting with their friends. But it's such like a a personal connection or example of the person behind the pot. For her and most archaeologists, the goal isn't finding hidden treasure or lost cities. It's about understanding human beings who lived before us. I studied archaeology, I studied osteology, human osteology, bioarchaeology. I've worked on a Roman site in Spain, and that's what really got me hooked. Got to go excavate this really cool necropolis and city for these Roman soldiers on this very small island off of Spain. We had our little brushes. Archaeologists are just nerds with toothbrushes. Every new brush, something new pops up out of the dirt, whether it's part of a wall or, or one thing that stands out in mind was this beautiful giant glass rose bead. It was just incredible, um, especially knowing it was like 2,000 years old. Just amazing. When the now legendary Nazca lines of Peru were first discovered in 1927, they were considered a unique phenomenon. But, But now, with the benefit of satellite imagery, thousands of ancient geoglyphs are being found all over the world. You know, as a kid, I grew up watching a lot of um, Discovery Channel documentaries, History Channel shows back when History Channel was more about history. I grew up watching all these shows and, and just learning and becoming really fascinated by them. But there's just, you know, you recognize there's just something missing or something a little bit off. And it kind of just stuck with me as I began to actually study archaeology and think, oh, okay, yeah, there there was something a little off about these very pop uh, culture representations of archaeology. Is it possible that these ancient geoglyphs were created not for a terrestrial purpose, but for an extraterrestrial one? Ancient astronaut theorists say yes. There's a term that some archaeologists use for fringe ideas about ancient history, and it's pseudo-archaeology. It's folks who are proposing these very speculative and alternative claims about the human past using archaeology, but doing it all under this guise of what's called stigmatized knowledge. So they're basically saying, you know, we're proposing this alternative theory, and you guys, the evil mainstream archaeologists, you're the ones who are suppressing it or hiding it to protect your reputations or or whatnot. Um, that conspiratorial element, to me, is a really, really important characteristic. Archaeologists have had a range of approaches to pseudo-archaeology. You know, do you ignore it? Do you play along? Do you go on a TV show about ancient giants and hope some good information comes across? But a 2022 show prompted some significant criticism from archaeologists. My suspicion is humans are a species with amnesia. We have forgotten something incredibly important in our own past. And I think that that incredibly important forgotten thing is a lost, advanced civilization of the Ice Age. Ancient Apocalypse, a big hit for Netflix, is presented by British author Graham Hancock, who's written several books of what you could call alternative history. And right off the top, in the first episode, he's got something to say about archaeologists. That automatically makes me enemy number one to archaeologists. Perhaps 
There's been a forgotten episode in human history, but perhaps the extremely defensive, arrogant and patronizing attitude of mainstream academia is stopping us from considering that possibility. I'm trying to overthrow the paradigm of history. So within the first few seconds of the episode, it's, you know, these disparaging comments about archaeologists first and then his theory second and then back to the archaeologists um, after that. So we were surprised by how aggressive it was against archaeologists. You know, we knew it was coming uh, because he had been advertising it. And folks who are familiar with with Hancock's work, his theories, um, know that he is just as well known for his theories as he is for claiming archaeologists have been trying to keep him down, ignore them, reject them. Hancock's central claim is that long ago, during the last Ice Age, there was a technologically advanced civilization, maybe in North America, maybe in Antarctica, maybe somewhere else. It was destroyed when an asteroid or disintegrating comet hit the Earth, and its scattered survivors traveled all over the world, bringing architecture and technology and agriculture to the world's hunter-gatherers. And that stories of this disaster became the mythology and religion of ancient cultures. They traversed the seas, passing down their geographic knowledge to others. Their appearances recorded in ancient traditions, even etched in stone. They directed less advanced cultures to memorialize what happened with huge monuments incorporating specific datable alignments. The show did very well ratings-wise when it was released. And many archaeologists felt that Netflix was giving pseudo-archaeology a big boost. The Society for American Archaeology sent a lengthy complaint letter to Netflix asking it to reclassify ancient apocalypse from documentary to science fiction. Their issues were, one, the show disparages archaeologists, two, there's absolutely no material evidence of this technologically advanced lost civilization, that's where those pot shards come in, and that the claims play into some already existing racist and white supremacist theories, such as that indigenous people in North and South America weren't actually the first people there, and couldn't possibly have built pyramids and earthworks on their own without being taught by some superior people. Hancock has responded, saying, in part, this is a spurious attempt to smear by association. My own theory of a lost civilization of the Ice Age is what I take responsibility for. It is nonsensical to blame me for the hypotheses of others, either now or in the past. But race does come up in Hancock's earlier work. In his first book on the subject, Fingerprints of the Gods, he pretty clearly suggested that this ancient advanced civilization was white. White and bearded, Osiris is the Egyptian manifestation of a universal figure, and it may not be an accident that one of the first acts he's remembered for in myth is the abolition of cannibalism among the primitive inhabitants of the Nile Valley. Fingerprints of the Gods was first published in 1995. Part of the claim is that the survivors of this ancient apocalypse went on to become the gods of less developed societies. 
It includes purported accounts of gods with white skin from ancient Egypt to Mexico to Peru, as in this excerpt. I was keen to pursue another related line of inquiry. This concerned the bearded, white-skinned deity named Quetzalcoatl, who was believed to have sailed to Mexico from across the seas in remote antiquity. He also bore a striking resemblance to Viracocha, the pale god of the Andes, who came in the time of darkness, bearing the gifts of light and civilization. Viracocha was a god of the Inca and pre-Inca Andean people. In the generations after the Spanish destroyed the Inca Empire, Spanish historians described Viracocha as white. What that had to do with what the Andean people themselves believed is unclear. Quetzalcoatl was not typically depicted as white. He was usually a snake man with feathers, the plumed serpent. Osiris wasn't white at all. Ancient Egyptians depicted him as green. Despite all that, the implication of the book is what all of these cultures thought of as gods were actually just white people. That part of the theory was left out of the Netflix show. 1995's Fingerprints of the Gods ends in the same way as Ancient Apocalypse, with a warning. Just like this advanced civilization fell, so too could ours. It's been prophesied that the next global destruction will fall upon us suddenly. Like lightning striking in the east and flashing far into the west, the sun will be darkened, the moon will lose its brightness, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. What has happened before can happen again. What has been done before can be done again. To archaeologists, the claim Hancock is making has been made before, and made so often that the field actually has a term for it, hyperdiffusionism. The idea there was one singular ancient people who gave civilization to the rest of the world. The idea that there was one poor civilization that developed technology or wisdom or skills or, or what have you, and then disseminated or diffused to other peoples around the world... That's not a new idea. In fact, that's one of the oldest models in archaeology. But it's because of its history that archaeologists would want very clear confirmation of it. It's uh, very much a um, situation of the boy who cried wolf. Uh, it has been said so many times that the scientific bar is going to be quite high. John Hoops is a professor of anthropology at the University of Kansas. He specializes in the archaeology of South and Central America. He's written papers critiquing Hancock's theories and has been critical of Ancient Apocalypse on Twitter and has a broad interest in pseudo-archaeology. He says alternate archaeological ideas are often tied up with cultural ideas, especially when it comes to apocalyptic prophecies, like in the case of the people he met at Burning Man in the 2000s. And it was as a result of my participation in Burning Man that I became aware of the fact that there was a community that had basically said after the Y2K global disaster did not occur with planes falling out of the sky and financial markets crashing, the counterculture began focusing on the idea that there had been Maya prophecies 
that either the end of the world or a global transformation of consciousness was going to occur on December 21st, 2012. As you may remember, the whole Maya calendar 2012 thing was tied up with ideas of cosmic catastrophes, whether it was sunspots or Nibiru or Planet X uh, or comets or something coming from outer space. But anyway, it was my fascination with that that led me to sort of do an archaeological excavation of the counterculture. As Hoops said, this unitary origin approach has been tried before in ways remarkably similar to ancient apocalypse. The big one, the granddaddy claim, came from, of all places, Minnesota. One of the best-known earlier versions was by Ignatius Donnelly, a Minnesota congressman in the late 19th century, who wrote a book on what he thought was an ancient civilization that had existed on a continent that had sunk in the Atlantic Ocean, which had been the origin for philosophy, technology, religion, and in particular, stories of great men who later became the gods in mythologies of subsequent civilizations. The name of this lost civilization and the title of Donnelly's book was Atlantis. He wrote a a sequel that was called Ragnarok, The Age of Fire and Gravel, published the following year in 1883. That second book is one that proposed that this civilization of Atlantis had been destroyed by a comet that had wiped out all traces of that civilization and caused it to sink beneath the waters of the Atlantic, but had also contributed to stories of a worldwide flood. If these propositions can be proved, they will solve many problems which now perplex mankind. They will explain the remarkable resemblances which exist between the ancient civilizations in the old and new worlds. And they will aid us to rehabilitate the fathers of our civilization, our blood, and our fundamental ideas. So, in Congressman Ignatius Donnelly's books from the 19th century, we've got a lost, technologically advanced civilization, it was destroyed by a comet impact, and its scattered survivors brought architecture and technology and agriculture to places as far off as Egypt and Mesoamerica. Now, if these things sound familiar, it's because Graham Hancock has been echoing exactly these things in Ancient Apocalypse. Ignatius Donnelly was an intriguing guy. And his theories about Atlantis tell us a lot about his ideas about the world. In his later political life, he became a sort of agrarian anarcho-socialist. He worried that railroad monopolies were taking land and rights away from small farmers. So he helped create a brand new political party dedicated to the rights of small landowners. It was called the People's Party, and it added a new word to the political lexicon. Populism. An ideology tapping into a sense of grievance that there are just two meaningful factions in a society. Those elites versus the common people. From the prolific womb of governmental injustice, we breed the two great classes, tramps and millionaires. Donnelly wrote the populist platform in Omaha, Nebraska in 1892. We meet in the midst of a nation brought to the verge of moral, political, and material ruin. A vast conspiracy against mankind has been organized and is rapidly taking possession of the world. 
if not met and overthrown at once, it forebodes the destruction of civilization. A nation in decline, moral and political ruin, conspiracy and destruction, all of them were big in Donnelly's writing. Especially in the dystopian futuristic novel he wrote called Caesar's Column, set in 1980s New York. On the surface, the city looks utopian and advanced, but behind the scenes, it's ridden with corruption, greed, and violence. By the end of the book, New York City is destroyed. But America begins anew. A series of small rural towns, each with a little town hall, a little post office, plenty of farmers, and by law, no property is less than an acre. Around each modest house there is a garden, blooming with flowers and growing food for the household. We are breeding men, not millionaires. And the good wife sings while she prepares the evening meal. Donnelly also wrote books about Atlantis. His first one, in 1882, was popular partly because he mailed out copies to a ton of prominent people. Charles Darwin got a copy and wrote back to Donnelly, Dear sir, I am much obliged for your kindness in sending me a copy of your Atlantis. I shall read the book with interest, though I must confess a very sceptical spirit. Charles Darwin. All references to Atlantis ultimately come from Plato, who made up the place as a political fiction, an allegory to contrast with the virtues of his native Athens. It's a story of a cataclysmic end to a people that had lost their virtue. But Donnelly starts his book claiming that Atlantis wasn't a metaphor at all, but a real place struck down in its prime. The book Atlantis reads as kind of a history paper, but his sequel, Ragnarok, is poetry. The book focuses on the supposed comet that wiped out Atlantis and flooded the world and is full of dark metaphors, warning of cataclysms to come. If we fall again upon axe ages, sword ages, wind ages, murder ages, if sensual sins grow huge, if brother spoils brother, if Sodom and Gomorrah come again, who can say that God may not bring out of the depths of space a rejuvenating comet? Axe ages, sword ages, wind ages, murder ages, that's from Norse mythology. From Ragnarok, the end of the world, when the earth turns to violent chaos, wolves eat the sun and moon, gods do battle, and the whole world is burned and begun anew. Donnelly's fiction, his politics, and his theories about Atlantis all have the same theme. Progress inevitably leads to corruption. There will be a reckoning, and the world must begin again. If Hoops were to perform a little anthropology on these stories, from Atlantis to ancient apocalypse, he'd say they resemble cosmology, a religious or mythological attempt to describe the nature of the universe to help people make sense of the world. And they contain a view of time and progress that is cyclical. The cyclical model sees the human experience as an ongoing cycle of repeated destructions and rebirths. 
Um, this is something that's often referred to as the perennial philosophy. It falls within the category of something called traditionalism, uh, which itself is an anti-modern movement, and anti-modernism is, is a part of that, versus the notion of a linear progressive cosmology, which in the Jewish tradition is headed towards the future perfection of the world, the notion of tikkun olam, uh, constantly perfecting the world until with the coming Messiah, it, it, it reaches perfection, or in the Christian tradition, up towards the second coming um, and the events foretold in the book of Revelations, which is, which is a linear model that results in the, the ultimate enlightenment. And so what we're seeing here are, are different models, a, a cyclical model of periodic destruction and rebirth and a linear model. That's a vast oversimplification of these philosophies, but I think it's a very useful way to view these things because the idea that there was an ancient apocalypse um, actually is, is part of Hancock's cosmology in which there were other ancient apocalypses. In fact, in 1999, Graham Hancock wrote a book called The Mars Mystery, in which he actually postulates that there was an ancient civilization on Mars that was destroyed by a cosmic catastrophe, and that it was some of the survivors of that catastrophe that came to Earth and founded this lost civilization of the Ice Age, which itself was subsequently destroyed. And then we have this future impending disaster, maybe not next year, but sometime soon, so you better get ready, but that that is actually part of what will be a future cycle of catastrophes. It's this cyclical, traditionalist model versus the notion of progress. So is it possible... Wait, can I... <clears throat> yeah. Can I do this uh, like it's my own archaeology show? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Is it possible that the success of both Donnelly's book and Ancient Apocalypse is that they both appeal to people's dissatisfaction with modernity? Could it be that they unite progressives' anxieties about capitalism and climate change with conservative anxieties about tradition and social change? Our answer might be found in the 1970s. You're listening to a documentary called Archaeology, Atlantis, and the Apocalypse on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. 
November 2022, Netflix released Ancient Apocalypse, a series featuring British writer Graham Hancock. It claims that a technologically advanced civilization thrived during the last Ice Age and that it was wiped out by a cosmic catastrophe. But, continues the thesis, scattered survivors brought civilization to the world's hunter-gatherers. He also claims archaeologists refuse to consider his ideas. And he's right. Professional academic archaeologists say there's simply no evidence to support these claims. Beyond Hancock and ancient apocalypse, there are a multitude of similar theories, lost civilizations with long-forgotten advanced technology. In this episode, producer Matthew Lazenrider looks at the appeal of fringe archaeology and the culture and politics behind it. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Nala. How many other people are writing or have written theories like this? Oh, tons. Uh, Ignatius Donnelly's books, who pitched the same idea but with Atlantis, his books still sell and are part of a whole range of these. Just a little after Donnelly, there was Madame Blavatsky. We did a whole episode about her a while ago. She was a, a 19th century Russian mystic who wrote a book which claimed there were two lost continents, Atlantis and Lemuria, and some of what she calls humanity's root races came from those before they sank. There was a pretty big book in the 1970s that I'm going to talk about in a second. Uh, there was a big spike in the 90s of similar books, and there are plenty of writers working today all around the idea that humanity's true history is being hidden from us by archaeologists, by governments, by whatever powers may be. You know, we said at the outset that fringe archaeology had connections with political and cultural ideologies. Where do you see those connections now? Well, a few places, two of which may seem uh, contradictory at the outset. I want to tell a story about a trip to a few bookstores that I took. So at the start of the show, we heard from Steph Holmhofer, an archaeologist here in Vancouver. She's doing a project where she's researching the use of pseudo-archaeological ideas in white supremacist groups. And she suggested I check out the website for a long-running anti-Semitic magazine. It's named after an early Holocaust denier named Harry Elmer Barnes. It's got an online bookstore where they list, uh, for example, books called Classic Essays on the Jewish Question and other anti-Semitic and white supremacist books. And their bookstore has an ancient history section. And what you find there is books by Graham Hancock, books about how Atlanteans brought technology to ancient peoples, and books about how ancient myths and religions actually come from one earlier source. Now, Homhofer isn't saying that Hancock or other writers of similar stories are explicitly supporting white supremacists or even know where their books are being sold. But she does say that obviously white supremacists find value in that idea. And the next part of the story is uh, the weekend after I decided to go out and do a little book shopping. 
And I went to Kitsilano, that's a neighborhood in Vancouver. And the 4th Avenue part of Vancouver uh, was the center of the hippie community here in the late 60s, early 70s. And there, there's uh, Banyan Books, which first opened a few blocks away in 1970. It carries a lot of mainstream books, but is a quintessential New Age bookstore. It's got uh, the, the incense, the tarot cards, the healing crystals. And there's another used New Age bookstore a few doors down. Now, the books in these two stores are obviously much different from the books in the white supremacist bookstore, right? It's books about alternative health. It's about getting in touch with spiritual wisdom, about the harms of capitalism. Totally different. Until you get to the ancient history section. And then you get books on Atlantis, books about how one lost ancient culture inspired every civilization from Egypt to Mesoamerica, and books by Graham Hancock. Well, that's really bizarre. What What is it about this idea that finds a home in both a New Age bookstore and a white supremacist one? That is an interesting question, right? And I think there are a few things going on there. There has been, over the past few years, a a phenomenon in isolated circles of New Age spirituality colliding with far-right conspiracy theories. The term that Halmhofer and others use is conspirituality. And pseudo-archaeology plays a role in those two elements coming together. And that story starts in the late 1960s. There's no one set of coherent beliefs that define the New Age movement, but the ideas hovering around it are that humanity has lost its way, and by rediscovering hidden or ancient knowledge, humanity can enter a new era of elevated consciousness. An age where science and spirituality are the same thing. The 1960s are a really interesting decade if you study new religious movements. Uh, A lot of really strange things begin to get very big in the culture uh, in the 60s. So there's a revival of the occult and witchcraft and the Church of Satan is founded in San Francisco. Joseph Laycock is an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University. And part of this is simply the baby boomer generation was in its experimental phase and sort of open to new ideas. But another piece of this is the so-called secularization narrative, which is the belief that over time, science will kill religion. So in the 1960s, a lot of people, whether they were religious or not, believed that religions maybe got another decade or two, and that certainly by the 80s and 90s, no one in America will be a Christian anymore. Everybody will have moved on to something else. So there's still this desire for uh, the sense of meaning and mysticism and the supernatural that came with traditional religion, but also a sense that some kind of replacement for traditional Christianity, something that's more compatible with science, has to be discovered. Politically, the New Age movement is usually associated with the left, but the new left, the baby boomer left, with that deep strain of individualism that emerged around the Vietnam War. One pattern that we can see, especially looking at the 20th century, is after uh, something like World War I, 
or if we're talking about the uh, what happened to the counterculture of the 1960s, uh, Vietnam, it casts doubts on this sort of enlightenment notion that we are all going to continue to advance in science and reason, and this is going to solve all of our problems. So with both of those cases, World War I and Vietnam, you do see a move to try to escape into some sort of romanticized past, and that there is an idea that if we could somehow rediscover and resurrect some lost knowledge of our ancestors, that we could have a more holistic and mystical and meaningful and peaceful life, but that what we've been told about science is going to fix all of our problems is simply not true. Science is giving us tanks and chemical weapons and Agent Orange, and and we've sort of been uh, sold a lie. We need some other kind of paradigm if we are going to have satisfying, happy lives. Interest in Atlantis and other advanced lost civilizations was a small part of the New Age movement, based on the writings of older Western esotericists like Edgar Cayce and Madame Blavatsky. What would take hyperdiffusionism mainstream, though, and its notion that there was one ancient but lost civilization from which we've all descended, was something out of this world. So this was really the perfect time uh, for Eric von Daniken to come along with Chariots of the Gods. Chariots of the Gods, the international bestseller by Eric von Daniken that shattered conventional theories about history and archaeology. Chariots of the Gods explores von Daniken's controversial and explosive theory that beings from other galaxies visited Earth in ancient times. Did a genius from another world design the pyramids? Is there evidence of a prehistoric airfield in the Andes? And what about the giant stone faces that brood over Easter Island? All over the Earth, the evidence is there. For an intriguing, fascinating, mind-opening experience, Chariots of the Gods. Swiss writer Eric von Daniken's book was first published in German in 1968. The English version would eventually become a huge success, one of those books that's just on the shelf in the 70s and 80s, along with The Joy of Sex and Jonathan Livingston Seagull. It's essentially the same argument as other lost civilization stories, except instead of being from Atlantis or elsewhere, the superior people were from space. The Nazca lines in Peru were spaceship runways, carvings on the walls of Mayan temples were actually images of spacemen, Aliens put up the giant heads of Easter Island instead of the Rapa Nui people who still live there to this day. What catapulted Chariots of the Gods into fame in the English-speaking world was a 1973 TV adaptation by NBC narrated by the Twilight Zone's Rod Serling. Eric von Daniken, a German professor possessed of the mind of a scientist and the imagination of a romantic, he stated that sometime in the distant past, man was visited by intelligent beings from outer space. What in olden times might have been heresy is today intriguing speculation. The TV program introduced von Daniken as a professor, but he wasn't actually a professor. While writing the book, he was working as a hotel manager in Switzerland. The year the book came out, he was arrested and subsequently convicted for embezzlement and defrauding that hotel, although he claimed it was a big misunderstanding. That's what he later told Playboy magazine. 
Like Graham Hancock in Ancient Apocalypse and other hyperdiffusionist theorists, von Daniken asserts that actual archaeologists are closed-minded and simply refuse to consider his ideas. Scholars make things so very easy for themselves. They stick a few pot shards together and hey, presto. And once again, everything fits together in the approved pattern of thought. The NBC special ended with a lone, dissenting voice. The question arises, might... There have been a visit to the Earth in historical times. There are popular books on this subject. A young pre-cosmos Carl Sagan. Um, it's an idea which people find exciting. It's a kind of scientific justification of theological belief, which people would rather believe uh, uh, in any case. Uh, it's kind of modern dress for old-time religion. Well, what about that? Is, it, is that possible or not? I can only say that you can't exclude the possibility, but there's not a smidgen of evidence that is compelling. Nothing is inherently religious or non-religious, really. It's, it's, uh, we look at a culture and we kind of arbitrarily decide these things are, are religious and this is something else. This is tradition or culture. Uh, and so there's always been kind of this confusion about where do scientific claims end and religious claims uh, uh, begin. You, know, you could make arguments that things like Coca-Cola are, are religious. But I think if we were going to make an argument that something like Chariots of the Gods is actually a sort of theology, right, as opposed to, to science or archaeology, I think we need to look at what is at stake, right? Is, is the goal simply to explain some anomaly about these ancient structures? Or is the goal actually to kind of imagine a universe that seems more meaningful, right? A universe where uh, human beings are not alone, where they can uh, be aware of the existence of some superhuman force without having to resort to pure faith with saying we have evidence uh, uh, that it, this exists. Uh, so if we think of this as more creating a, a cosmology that is satisfying, then I think it does have a lot more in common with the religion uh, than with the scientific paradigm. One of the first people to define religion was the anthropologist E.B. Tyler, uh, who just said, when I say religion, I mean belief in spiritual beings. Uh, and, and he meant beings that are supernatural. If you believe in ancient aliens, they are perhaps not literally supernatural, uh, they can be explained in terms of, of science as extraterrestrial uh, uh, life forms, but they are superhuman, right? For all intents and purposes, they may as well be uh, the gods. So it will be man's ultimate insight to realize that his justification for existence to date and all his struggles to advance really consist in learning from the past in order to make himself ready for contact with the existence in space than the promise of the gods, of peace on earth, and that the way to heaven is open, can come true. I think there are unintended consequences sometimes to the ancient aliens hypothesis, right? One of them is the assumption that impressive stone structures can only be built by Europeans or space aliens, uh, lends itself to certain views that are possibly racist or colonialist or, or problematic in other ways. So regardless of how we pursue these kind of questions of, is it harmless or is it dangerous? I do think we are well served by acknowledging that uh, these beliefs are meaningful to the people who, who hold them. 
uh, and they're not going to give them up easily uh, because there is something that is meaningful and important and even comforting about the idea of, of ancient aliens. Chariots of the Gods went a long way in mainstreaming hyperdiffusionist ideas. And while UFO cults and alien spirituality were part of counterculture before him, by the late 1970s, aliens had fully combined with New Agey terminology. In your mind you have capacities, you know. Things like this chart-topping 1977 song from the easy-going, middle-of-the-road band The Carpenters, originally by Canadian band Klaatu, which calls on people to use psychic powers to communicate to hidden spacecraft so the benevolent aliens can bring peace to Earth. Von Daniken's work lives on in the TV show Ancient Aliens, which often features Von Daniken, Graham Hancock, and other writers of lost ancient civilization stories. And a theme of the show is that to reconnect with our forefathers, the ancient aliens who inspired civilization and then retreated to the stars, we must recover our ancient supernatural abilities. What the extraterrestrials did when they fashioned our DNA and activated our neocortex was cosmic consciousness, cosmic awareness, psychic abilities that could potentially link us to extraterrestrials. So, hyperdiffusionism fits on the shelves of the New Age bookstore because it offers a spiritual cosmology, an origin of the world that rejects traditional religious authority and hints at sacred wisdom that can save humanity from itself. And what about the white supremacist bookstore? Well, there is that implication in a lot of these books that only Europeans, Atlanteans, or space aliens are capable of coming up with geometry and architecture and agriculture. There is something else as well. Most of these stories rely on the suggestion that powerful people are hiding the truth. The framing is that, hey, you know something's not right. You know that this world isn't fair. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be, right? Well, what if I told you that these people were making things unfair? Brent Lee is a former conspiracist. That's the description he gave me of himself. What if I told you they're not telling you the whole story? What if this whole story could be the answer to why everything's so messed up? Lee lives in Bristol, in the UK, where he hosts a podcast called Some Dare Call It Conspiracy, aimed at the family and friends of people who've become wrapped up in the world of online conspiracy theories, like he did for years. I completely, I withdrew myself from my social circle because they didn't really want to talk about the things I was talking about. So, yeah, I just completely pulled myself away. Um, I lost tons of friends over it. I did find a new community, obviously, within the truth movement. And I found my partner. She was also a truther. We're still together today. We both came out of the rabbit hole together. 
and that's probably the the, the only strong relationship I I held through that whole time. Of course, you can read books and watch TV shows about ancient lost civilizations without becoming a conspiracy theorist. But some people get really deep into this stuff and start to lose themselves. You know, we are not being told the truth. And there's this bigger thing at play. And if they're hiding it, well, what are they hiding? Why are they hiding it? Early on, Lee found the work of David Icke, a former British footballer and sportscaster, turned one of the most prolific conspiracy theorists of today. Starting in the 90s, he combined New Age spiritualism, alternative health, ancient astronaut theories, and time-worn anti-Semitic tropes to tell a story of how what looks like the chaos and uncertainty of the world is actually a carefully planned conspiracy by interstellar reptilians who may or may not be Jewish. David Icke, obviously well-known for his lizard and reptilian theories, would talk about this ancient... Illuminati bloodline and try to show that like they had been been operating since the days of Babylon. And he would lean on people like Graham Hancock or or Eric Von Daniken. That that really did pique my interest because they were showing iconography from all over the world, from cultures and civilizations that were completely separate through space and time. And there seemed to be some sort of overlap. You know, why did all these people build pyramids all of a sudden? Why didn't they just, some build pyramids, some build skyscrapers? Like those sorts of questions. And that truly was my introduction to it. And I was pretty hooked because I thought, well, if I can work out what the true history is, maybe I can understand what is going on today. Now, Lee doesn't blame Graham Hancock for him falling deep into conspiracism. But to Lee, Hancock became the friendly face of the idea that the authorities are hiding the truth from you about the true nature of history in the world. Graham Hancock, when I first read Fingerprints of the Gods, he wasn't that far out when I had been introduced to those other very far out ideas. And it seemed like he was coming from a more academic like level and i just really gelled with him like he's an, a kind english man um it just didn't seem so wacky and just it felt much more believable and his writing was fascinating the things that he would point out was just fascinating to me and i i've been a fan literally for 20 years i i bought so many of his books i've been to two of his lectures and i just had this affinity for him like i said recently i used to call him uncle graham that that if he was coming on me and my partner both go oh uncle graham's coming on and we'd, we'd have a listen like he just was inoffensive the world of conspiracy theories is complex and often tragic People become propagators of lies at the same time as they become victims of lies. If a conspiracy theorist can show you a book and say, here, everything you know about ancient history is a lie, well, then they can also show you that everything about modern history is a lie, and the Holocaust is a lie. So why is fake archaeology on the bookshelves of the white supremacist bookstore? 
because it helps white supremacists. I admit it. I understand it now. Like, it's not that we are racists or we are bigots or we are anti-Semitic or any of these things, but we are pushing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. We are pushing essentially white supremacist talking points. We are pushing far right ideologies without even understanding or realizing it. But I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the talking points or the language or the tropes that these people used. And I still think to this day, like David Icke and Graham Hancock don't think that they are these things. And so they refuse to accept that they're pushing these things, but they are, they are pushing it, but they don't realize it. Authority is good to question. Learning for yourself is great, but there's got to be something to verifiable truth, to understanding that the world is a complex place that can't be explained away by one simple answer. I think this is a fundamental problem of pseudo-archaeology and these models of the past, is they seek to simplify something that is fundamentally not simple at all. John Hoops, archaeologist, Kansas State University. It's a lot simpler to explain things if there's a global conspiracy that's concealing the information and it's those guys who are hiding it from us. In fact, I think that's the appeal of this notion of a unitary origin of civilization. It's a lot easier to understand the past if it all came from just one place. skeptical about their constructions that seem to defy the technological capabilities of their ties proclaim they created the wonders of the world i believe there are ancient civilizations that some people refuse to write about but ancient civilizations this speaks to the idea of extraterrestrial intervention You are listening to Ideas and to an episode called Archaeology, Atlantis, and the Apocalypse from producer Matthew Lazenrider. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode, go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find a list of books for further reading and a response from Graham Hancock to the Society for American Archaeology. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Special thanks to Michael Blake in the Department of Anthropology at the University of British Columbia and Amitav Chaudhry at the Department of History at Queen's University. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Laura Antonelli. Senior producer, Nicola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayand. If we multiply the height of the pyramid by one billion, it equals almost exactly the distance from the Earth to the Sun. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.